I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, it's Lainey. Hey, it's Joanna. Welcome to Show Your Work. Here we are. Did you buy the merch? Did I buy the merch? Yeah. No. There's merch today? No, I bought the Lauren Hill tickets, remember? Right. Sorry, I should have texted you. It was just... <laughs> oh my God, I wish I could take a picture of you right now. You are so mad. I, I ended up, like, I, I think I clicked on the wrong thread or just, you know... No, 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 no. I can hear you trying to dig yourself out of trouble. No, Fuck. I sweated my ass for Lauren Hill tickets and I got... Good seats, by the way. And I should point out that Lauren Hill chose very interesting cities for her tour, and we're lucking out that she's coming to Toronto. But you've sapped <laughs> like my achievement joy. Fuck. So this is and- live and uncensored, by the way, people. This is not a, a, a bit. Fuck. I thought you were on it. Okay. Right now it's Friday, April 20th. It's 420. Um, and around two-ish in the afternoon, a pop-up came up on Beyonce.com and it was the Beychella merch. Did you like <laughs> text some other like thread of other friends who so, care more? So it was Kathleen who texted me first and she was like, fuck, the merch page is up. And I was like, what? And so because you and I and Kathleen were texting this morning, I just thought it was the no, same you thread. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. I seriously did. This podcast is over. <laughs> I'm now going to buy some things. Okay. Sorry. I Anyway, I thought you were on it. I got the windbreaker mm-hmm. and the crop top. The windbreaker's she, okay. She she is agonizing over what color crew neck to get or was. What, that sweatshirt? Yeah. Okay. What crop top did you get? The Nefertiti crop or no. the Oh New? You got the Beyonce. Got it. I got the... Because there was, I'm more, I think, about the Nefertiti crop, although I'm not usually about a photo tee. Um, I should say, not only is Beyonce merch, like, notable, and you should call your friend or text her in the middle of the day, uh, but I I have had, um, so when Formation Tour happened, I bought a Beehive Boys sweatshirt, which is, I think, intended for men, uh, and kind of like did a bit of a flash dance on it, which I'm very proud of. And you like actually stopped when I walked in one day in it because you were so like delighted. With yes. It. I was going to do an Elaine to you, which is like push you back. Yeah, you did a little bit. Like it, it was the verbal equivalent. So perhaps there is something like that to be done here. Although like, how do you expect me to focus now? <laughs> I I just wanted to, I thought you were on it and then like you would have gotten something. Anyway, this is how we're opening again with Beyonce running our lives. Like are there things that have expired? I know expired? you love fucking like collegiate shit too. I love that collegiate is- shit. I love merch. I love limited availability. Anything. Yes. 
A friend of mine accused me recently of being too susceptible to clothing that is uh, marketed via social media, mm-hmm. which I resent and also is true. Um, how do I know if there wasn't the perfect item for me that is now sold out? So far, I don't think anything has been sold out. Um, I'm looking at some sizing. like, And it's also all pre-order. You're not getting it till May. Yeah, that's irrelevant. <sighs> okay. Do you, are you going to do, should we postpone this podcast? <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. Um, I'm going to put this aside and think about this when I have time to devote to it. Right. Uh, so basically as soon as you leave my house. Yeah. Um, but it's about delayed gratification, which is really interesting. The, the idea that you said, you know, it's coming in May. And of course, today I bought the Lauren Hill tickets, which I'm so, so excited about. She is playing at, uh, what is it called now? The Budweiser State. Okay, here's the deal. I assume this is happening in all of the cities where everybody is listening. But there are venues that we grew up knowing for many, many years. Mm -hmm. And then somewhere around, I don't know, 99, 2001, they started being sold and changing names all the time. And now you can't keep track. And I resent that I have to change 25 years of calling the Molson Amphitheater the Molson Amphitheater and call it the Budweiser stage, which doesn't express what it is, which is like a big, beautiful outdoor stage and people can sit on the lawn for not that much money and it's really exciting. And it's where I saw Lauren Hill for the very first time 20 years ago when she was touring with this album in the first place. I'm very excited. I almost wanted to buy cheap lawn seats uh, like so that we could yeah. have a blanket and be those people. But I thought certain members of our party might revolt. That would be me. Among others. I yeah. don't sit on grass. I know you don't. Like, which is I, like <laughs> That is not a thing that I do. But it's a thing that you do at the Molson Amphitheater. This is what people do. Pardon me, the Budweiser stage. Right. Well, we are going to the Budweiser stage on July 18th. 18th. It's a Wednesday. Uh, you know, assume an all-day retrospective of Lauren Hill on the site the next day. I'm wondering if I need to actually take a holiday day at work the next day because, as we know, Ms. Lauren Hill is not... <laughs> Remember last week we talked about Beyonce's timing mm-hmm. and how if the show says start time nine o'clock, we're coming in either at nine or nine ten. I maybe, mean, yeah, yeah. That is not Ms. Lauren Hill's style. No, she comes when she's ready, and people have been known to leave the show beforehand and not be patient enough, which I think is folly because it's worth it to wait. I have to point out, though, to pat ourselves on the back to show our work if necessary, um, that one intrepid listener feels that we magicked this tour into being by talking about Lauren Hill last week uh-huh. in in tandem with Beyonce. You mentioned that she would have been the comparable Coachella headliner once upon a time. Um, and I'll take it. I will take all of that. Yeah, we'll conjure. So delayed gratification, delayed until May, maybe if, you know, there's anything left here that is, is appropriate, delayed until July. Uh, but I like doing these things. I like kind of laying in wait for things that are 
going to make you happy in the future. Okay, so speaking of delayed gratification then, a couple of weeks ago, more, we previewed that we were going to be talking about Sean Mendez. Oh, you're welcome for that segue. <laughs> and then we didn't get to it because personal, family, health issues, and then and Beyonce. Yeah, like yeah. that's the real reason. Yeah. Let's be honest here. So we are now delayed gratification getting to Sean Mendez. And so the reason we were going to talk about Sean Mendez, of course, was uh, multifold uh, because old people such as we are need to keep up with the kids, right? Yes. But he is coming up to the old people. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and we have written about it on the site. We have talked about how Sean Mendez at 19 now, for sure, most, for sure, most of his fan base is going to be the Sean Mendez army or the Mendez army and they're young, but in order for him to have a sustainable career, he has to reach up and he has to be like, Hey, grown ups, old people, as you like to call us, Duanna, here's music that you want to listen to that I made. And with the first two songs released off this album, he's doing that. Um, Lost in Japan is a banger. It's a really, really good song. And then, of course, the first release before Lost in Japan came out is In My Blood. And it's a song where he talks about his anxiety, his mental health struggles. I mean, this is not teeny bopper juvenile songwriting. He is definitely leaning into a more mature sound. And if the readers of our website are anything to go by. We have heard from many of you who are closer to old people age like us than 14-year-olds who are like, damn you guys for making me into Sean Mendez. Wow, I really like this song. I might have a Sean Mendez problem now. I'm a woman in my 30s. I'm a woman in my 40s. So yeah, this is the work of Sean Mendez or Team Mendez now in releasing his third album, which is on the way. I believe it's going to be a June release. His third album, fuck, he's 19, P.S. Um, his third album, this is going to be the work. This is what they're selling to. Well, I mean, look, I said to you before we started recording this podcast that I was in a mood. I'm ready to be crotchety. But maybe it's the contrarian, as you would like to say, because what's interesting to me is he's only 19 and he has three albums. And as you say, like there are people who are interested above and beyond the, like why there are certain artists who come out and they don't have to defend themselves against being teeny boppers, regardless of how old they are. Right. Obviously the names we've already mentioned today, Beyonce and Lauren Hill come to mind, both very young when they came on the scene. But the biggest one that I think of is, of course, Adele, right? Whose first album, which I want to say seminal album, but arguably that's 21, but whose first massive album is literally called 19 because it's about her life at 19. I guess my first question is whether there are a different set of standards for Shawn Mendes because we happen to know how old he is. Or let's go bigger. Yeah. Is there a different set of standards for male entertainers? Well, let's go smaller. Is there a different set of standards for male entertainers who are good looking? You know, a million years ago, I worked at a music video show uh, that promoted new young artists. And it was very much aimed at, at 
tweens, uh, as we would not have said then. But there were artists who didn't fit that mold. Sometimes there was a, a guitar guy called Johnny Lang, mm-hmm. uh, and he was good looking enough. Wait for the like latent low key Johnny Lang stands to come at me and scream at me. By the way, but. He didn't have to defend himself against being a teeny bopper despite being young because he wasn't that cute. So is this partly about what he looks like? I'm not sure. I, I, I'm. There's a really, really good question. I like where we're going with this because I think that we have seen examples not only in recording artists but in acting as well. When Timothy Chalamet, who is, what, 23, 22 years old, was nominated for Best Actor for Call Me By Your Name, there were all kinds of accompanying news articles and reports pointing out that he was the youngest Best Actor nominee in something like 80 years or maybe more. I mean, you Oscar historians can correct that, but it was like decades upon decades upon decades. And a deeper dive on that reflected that the Academy um, does not reward young actors, whereas on the flip side... We see all the time the Jennifer Lawrences, the Emma Stones. On the actress side, women in their 20s win all the time. Well, recently they win all the time because the women in their... The next step up for the women they might be competing with, the Sandra Bullocks and Julia Robertses and package Reese Witherspoon in there if you want to, Nicole Kidman's, they're another gap away. Like, we don't have any 35-year-old Oscar potentials in in women, which is a, an interesting sidetrack that we didn't expect to get to. Mm-hmm. But you're right. There's no sort of lower limit for the age there because, as we know, um, they need to be able to play opposite men 35 years older than them. But that's neither here or there. Well, and even in the supporting categories, when you're getting really, really young, you've got like the Tatum O'Neills, you've got the… Uh, Anna Paquin. Paquin and you've got the Anna Paquins who are winners. So, that they, so they have been known to reward and award literally children. Mm-hmm. But on the boy side or the young man side… It is, it's just not a thing on, on the academy level in acting. That is just not something they're comfortable with. And for recording artists, we're maybe examining whether or not there's a similar phenomenon. And so, again, to take it bigger, is this a sociological thing? The person I've been Googling while we were talking is John Legend. Because John Legend came onto the scene when he was a little older than Shawn Mendes, certainly, but still in his early 20s, and never had to defend himself about being a teeny bopper. Now, he was also never in a boy band. He never Mm -hmm. did that kind of thing, but arrived on the scene as an adult. Whether that has to do with marketing and packaging and who he is, Alicia Keys is maybe a comparable female artist who arrived young but was an adult, or is there something else to it? Like, are we always ready to see men or boys as younger kind of snacks to use your slang that you picked up from the kids? Like, 
do we have to wait a certain amount of time before they get old enough to be acknowledged? Well, I I guess the biggest name that we haven't mentioned yet, if we're going to go here and talk about this, is is Michael Jackson. Okay, but Michael Jackson was a child. A child. And I think why I'm interested in exploring Shawn Mendes for our podcast right now is because all the young stars who became superstars that we've mentioned throughout the course of our podcast since the beginning have been people who are already established as superstars, right? Britney, Adele, Beyonce, Justin Timberlake. How do you mean already established? Like you mean they arrived on the scene as… No, they're already who they are. We're, we, weren't, we aren't doing the podcast at the beginning of Britney's career. Got at it. the beginning of… But we are actually in this moment of Shawn Mendes's career where this could be a next level moment. It's a next level show your work discussion where we're not talking about Shawn Mendes when he's already the, whatever Adele is and whatever Britney is. We, are, we, are, we get to examine what goes into, because that's what he wants, no? Well, I guess that's what he wants. And also the fact that you're even giving voice to him in the same breath as those people implies that he has that potential, right? That implies that he, like a Beyonce, like we talked about last week, that's has right. been uh, honing what is a substantial gift mm-hmm. um, for all this time. And we have templates now. We have templates now. We, I've just listed five or six of them. And so now we get to watch it happen in real time and, and, and analyze it in real time. But I guess what's weird about it to me uh, is that Michael Jackson, for example, was never a sex symbol. And that has to do with our attitudes and racism and marketing of Michael Jackson as a young person and then a young man, right? He was a novelty and then he was a musical novelty and then he was, oh, that Michael grabs his crotch so much and then he was a a news of the world headline, which all of which diminish his musical talent. And by the same token, Justin Timberlake, who I'm sorry to say to you, I'm sorry to say probably has a lot, a lot of musical talent, which I know you don't want to hear. I I agree. I think he has musical talent. But like a substantial amount of musical talent, I think probably, unfortunately. Now I wish we could see your face on camera. Go on. But he was a, a boy bander, a sexualized teeny bopper who only later emerged as, oh, hey, I have all this in my back pocket. And some of the people that we're talking about, you know, uh, they fall really clearly on one side or another. Adele, adult-sized talent who arrived on the scene. Britney, utterly sexualized and maybe her talent was diminished. You can kind of make that a binary of everybody we've talked about so far. So my question first, I guess, is which side will Sean Mendez fall on? I don't know. I because I'm I'm and listen, before you all freak out, we're not saying Sean Mendez is gonna become Michael Jackson. Like I, I can't believe I have to even say that, but I just wanna get that out there because outrage culture. Anyway. But if you're speaking about him in the same breath as some of these people, there must be the potential there, right? Certainly the numbers are there. If we're considering fame and stardom and success by today's standards, 
and social media activity and engagement and all that. The numbers are there and he definitely has the industry support. Going back to Michael Jackson, yes, he emerged on the scene as a child and arguably the most talented of his family's band. And then once he broke out… Sorry, his family's band? Yes. Okay. What? Should I call it something else, do you think? No, I just… That's a thing? He had a family band? The Jackson 5? I'm so sorry. I thought you were talking about Shawn Mendes at the time. Oh. (laughs) So when Michael wanted to go solo, off the wall was his man moment. I'm sexy. I'm, you know, I, I sang sweetheart, teeny bop, love songs with the Jackson 5, but now on my own when I'm singing real groovy beats, I mean it with experience. And then, of course, Thriller was Thriller. I will say that when those albums came out, I was very young, but I sexualized Michael Jackson. I wanted to be Michael Jackson's everything. I, like, I'm just going to say, you actually cut yourself off from saying you wanted to fuck Michael Jackson. And then you were like, oh, I have to pull that back. And you… you- well, I pulled it back because I, I don't know that I knew what fucking was. Like, if I now that I know what fucking really is, then of course, I don't think that I was imagining Michael Jackson's penis going inside of me I, I at mean, the time. I get it. But I had feelings, the burgeoning, blossoming tingles of early sexuality, I had those feelings and I directed them towards Michael Jackson. Now, to bring it back to Shawn Mendes, I wonder if his first two albums, all the songs that we know, they're very sweet and wholesome love songs. And anybody who has ever had a record contract would tell you that their first album, maybe their first two albums, are largely out of their control, are in the hands of the record company and the songwriters and regardless of how talented you are, you know, you're, you're kind of representing something that the record company wants. Uh, I can't let this pass without saying that Mandy Moore had famously, arguably her most famous quote, is that she thought anybody who bought her first two albums should get a refund, which isn't to say, oh, I'm not a singer, I'm not a songwriter, but those weren't it. So that's where we find ourselves now. You're right. And I'm looking at Sean Mendez's early hits, the big early hits. I'm looking at, for example, I mean, the one that just pops right into my mind. If I'm if someone's gonna pop quiz me on Sean Mendez's first hit, I'm gonna say Stitches. Do you Can you can you sing that for us? No, I'm not gonna sing Stitches for you. <laughs> I'm not gonna <laughs> This that, is how I know. There are many songs that I can sing. Well, this is but how I know I, how viscerally a song has ingrained itself in your brain because you will sing some songs. I will, not Stitches. And so I'm, I, because I, in the back of my mind, I was like, okay, is there, given what you just said about having songs chosen for you and other people making those decisions, I said, is there an asterisk to that statement when they write the songs, the artist writes the songs? So I'm thinking, so I obviously, again, my point, whole point was I'm thinking of Stitches. That's probably his biggest hit or his breakout hit or the one most people the one that most people know, um, and who wrote it, I don't think it was him. And I'm saying now, it was Teddy, uh, no, it was, it was 
three people called Danny Parker, Teddy Geiger, and Daniel Kiriakides. Right. And Teddy Geiger, uh, who, from my understanding, uh, has transitioned but still uses Teddy Geiger uh, as her name, uh, had a kind of a brief pop career in Mm -hmm. the spotlight of her own. Yeah. So, you know, people who know what's up were writing that song. Now, if I'm going to go down the list of hits of Shawn Mendes after Stitches, I think the second one that people might know best or better than Stitches would be Treat You Better, right? I know I can treat you better. Yeah, sure. Wait, why wouldn't you sing Stitches, but you sang that one? (laughs) I think I've probably, it's more recent, first of all, and Treat You Better really was, for some reason, every time I went to the bathroom at work. (laughs) It was was playing. Sorry, we have to clarify, (laughs) in the building where you work, there, uh, the kind of top 40 radio is piped in. Everywhere. S- but especially in the bathroom. That's right. Or maybe you can hear it more in the bathroom. Like, I have peed to treat you better so many times. I, it's, so anyway, I know Treat You Better. Now, by the time Treat You Better comes out, the songwriting credits are Shawn Mendes and Teddy Geiger. But of course, as we know and as we discussed, I think, a little bit last week, writing credits can be depending on how they're listed, yes, can involve a lot of the song or a catchy rhyme at the end of the fourth stanza. Yes. Sean's name is listed first here for what it's worth. Wow. But to go back to where we were talk to go but to go back to what we were discussing, this is a progression of a career, right? Stitches in 2014. Treat You Better in 2016. Now we're on the third album. Is this his moment where he's like, I'm done with the sweetheart, earnest, um, you know, kind of almost not aggressively sexual songs. And now I'm singing about getting to my girl um, in Tokyo, having one night in a hotel where we can bang because our schedules are so busy, but I'm just so hard up for you that I'll take a plane or you take a plane and we'll just get it on and then see you later. What's the release date of the album? So here's what's interesting to me about that. I was with you as you listed the albums and the hits, and then when you started saying the dates, 2014, uh, his first album and Stitches, and 2016, his second album and Treat You Better. And now I'm imagining if you are, uh, you know, a Swedish songwriter or uh, a record label or whatnot, and this guy's now kind of a sure thing, right? You get a third album if the first two have been off the charts sales-wise. How long do you give that kid wordfully intended off in order to have some experiences to write about? Well, this is a really interesting question and a really interesting release schedule because if you want any kind of comparison or we're, what, this is what we're doing, right? We're using the template and we're applying it to Shawn Mendes. Taylor Swift, up until Reputation, was an every two-year release date. Even with uh, 1989? hmm hmm And for her, it was a prescribed time of year. So that's why everybody was like, October, November, that's where she likes to release her album. So 
1989. And then two years before that, I believe it was Red. And then two years before that, it was Fearless. Right. So again, going by the template, Sean Mendez, 2014, 2016, now 2018. I like how your eyes are moving, Duanna. You are, things are churning in there, right? Like, and this is what is so fascinating to me when we're talking about work and, again, using that word prescribed schedules and following certain paths where we're borrowing from one artist and borrowing from another artist, how they have used this research they already have in the industry and they are kind of molding it around Sean Mendes. Except that, how do I put this kindly? Young people who enter the professional celebrity realm at this age have a terrible failure rate. Yeah. Like, uh, when I've explained the television development schedule to people, uh, that, you know, 100 pilots are written, but only 25 are shot, and only five are picked up for the next year, etc. Those are not exact numbers. Don't email me. Um, it's an industry that is predicated on not failure, but uh, attrition, let's say. But every time there's a breakout star like this, they are expected to be the new one, the Mm -hmm. new hope, the one who will have no missteps and who will, to your point about the model, kind of evade the mistakes of those who have gone before them. And that makes me feel very trepidatious. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of pressure on not only succeeding and not only having a a third album that is more adult and that succeeds uh, as well as the previous two young albums have gone, if that's what he does, but also to not make those same missteps, Mm -hmm. which if you're thinking about them in your mind, those missteps are more associated with young women than with young men, but not exclusively. No, not exclusively. And obviously the most immediate example we can think of is Justin Bieber. Um, But the reason why I think you asked that question about how much time does the the record label give Shawn Mendes to come up with more songs and and if if he's given a chance to live, to be able to mine from those experiences to put these songs together – But yet, they're looking at this schedule every two years because, of course, you wait longer than two years will people forget about you, right? You have to give give us something to chew on, something to consume. Maybe. Or maybe that's my provincial thinking. And when you are at Shawn Mendes' level with devoted fans who have created, you know, totems and Instagrams and whatnot to wait for you, Maybe there's not such a worry because he can engage with them on a day-to-day basis without releasing an album, and they don't forget about him because he's in their lives every day. I wonder whether I wonder whether it depends on the fan, too. You know, if I'm a record label executive and I'm, like, doing my research and understanding who the Shawn Mendes fan is, I'm saying, well, shit, she's 13, and at 13, every five minutes, she's into a new thing. Or that is that is the conventional wisdom of it. I'm worried that, you know, you won't stick around for her in her mind. She's going to be 
thinking about boys, other boys, real life boys. She's going to be wanting to drive. She's going to have other interests. I think those are the old school thoughts that have been so um, ingrained and conditioned into the industry that form the foundation of whatever this two-year, every two-year period and schedule is. But, you know, I have to, this is not where I intended to go, but I have to kind of look askance at that attitude because it implies such a, it implies such a fickleness in 13-year-old girls that I'm not sure applies. Again, it's a different world. Uh, back in the day, if your, you know, if your favorite artist didn't release an album for three years, you didn't know where they were. Or if your favorite actor or whatnot went off the grid, there was no way to know what was happening. Um, but it's not that you stopped wondering. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of casting around in my mind now, but you were, you were delighted when they emerged from having been maybe silenced for a while. Uh, and I just, I think that if that thinking still exists, it is underestimating, uh, young girls in a way that, and you're, you're kind of rolling your eyes at me like, yeah, no kidding. But I think it's interesting because I think that's what's changing. In a different time, Britney or Selena Gomez or who, or, you know, Justin Timberlake had to not alienate their fans, but we're living in an age where they're growing up together, Mm -hmm. which is really, really fascinating. Well, I always say that an artist has to grow with their fans. You know, Shawn Mendes is 19 now, so what, 2014 was four years ago, so a lot of people would have met him at... 15. Mm-hmm. And let's say, probably very understandable, a lot of his fans, of course, would have been, what, 13, 14, and 15 when they were first discovering him. I mean, we can't forget that Sean Mendez first kind of came to prominence before there was ever an album at My Favorite Thing in Yours, MagCon, yeah. right? Which was very much aimed at that young, young tween to teen group. That's right. And so, That is what that artist, that level of artist has to do. They have to grow or they have to make it so that their fans grow with them. Britney was able to do that. Britney was able to take her fans along and as you, to borrow your expression, they grew up together. Someone who wasn't able to make that happen is Avril. Um, Avril Lavigne is one of my favorite examples. Um, I'm not saying favorite, like I'm happy that it happened to her, but it just so happened that 14 was, I always throw out the number 14, but when she first came on, those fans were in and around that age. And I don't know that 10 years later at 24, they cared about Avril the way that Britney's fans, for example, continue to care about her, even if they met her when they were 12. Well, let's be very specific about why that is. It's not because Britney is different than Avril per se. It's because Avril Lavigne's music was indistinguishable in 2016 from 2006. Yes? Yes. Now, here's where I'll say that Justin Bieber did it quite effectively, where, of course, we know Justin Bieber was like a kid on YouTube. His early songs, Baby, and uh, look, I'm not going to list them all, were wholesome and sweet in that prommy kind of way. And then he came out with dance tracks. He started working with DJs. Those songs were taken right into the club. So immediately, you have Justin Bieber before, and then Justin Bieber 
of two or three three years ago now being suddenly part of songs that people want to dance to. And automatically, these are people in their 20s. You're going to a club in Vegas. You're, you know, dancing to a Justin Bieber track. Those are people who are like, huh, JB, not bad. And then that album, Purpose, had a lot, a lot, a lot of great songs on it. So this is where we're seeing Shawn Mendes right now on album number three. Lost in Japan is kind of one of those transition songs, which I think is very good. Well, incredibly, if you can believe it, this is all background. Um, because one of the things that's so interesting to me about Shawn Mendes, uh, for what it's worth, it says here, his third album was inspired by Justin Timberlake, Kings of Leon, Kanye West, and Daniel Caesar. Uh, but uh, Shawn Mendes is not just releasing a third album. He's not just uh, Justin Bieber. He's not just Taylor Swift, uh, although closer to Taylor than Justin. He has a whole other avenue that he is developing, which is either exactly who he is or part of his strategy to ingratiate himself with the more adult market. Uh, and I'm interested. I'm skeptical, but yeah. I'm interested. Well, I think that where I first kind of hooked you a little bit was a few weeks ago, I told you about the one-week residency that he's doing with James Corden on The Late Late Show. And that's when I first heard the patented signature Duana Taha, huh, <laughs> which, which always says to me, okay, I, I, I want to know more, huh. Um, and that is coming up in June. So that's why people are anticipating and speculating that the album is going to be coming out around then. Uh, and this week we saw some clips, some previews of him doing a rap battle on Drop the Mic against, Obe against Odell Beckham Jr., which I played for you prior to beginning this podcast and you, well, you had some opinions. Yeah, no, I wasn't okay with that. <laughs> like, here's the thing. I think Late Night is a very... Interesting, arguably, like, would I go as far as to say admirable? I don't know. But it's a very particular dance to do. There's a reason Justin Timberlake is not just Justin Timberlake, but a frequent Saturday Night Live guest. There's a reason that Drake is a frequent Saturday Night Live guest. There's that element of not taking oneself too seriously. There's the element of if you are involved in late night uh, you can talk to anybody. And it's one of those things. That's part of the charm of a talk show, right? The part of the charm of a talk show is watching, like, Stephen Colbert try to talk to Rihanna. Like, that's just, it's hilarious on its face. Or watching, I don't know, Ellen DeGeneres try to say to... Uh, like, Joaquin Phoenix. So, what are you about? Like, that's humorous. Mm -hmm. So... And there's an element of laughing at oneself. So I'm always here for somebody who wants to laugh at themselves, and it already makes me more interested in Shawn Mendes. No question. That said, uh huh. Like I, I, like I'm almost mad at you for featuring this rap battle on your site. Like I do not have editorial control. Uh, I, I, I linked to it. But I would like to 
like, I would like to think I am, you know, sort of your psychological gut check. I, this bothered me. Tell me why. Because I'm not going to pretend like I am super well versed in rap battles, but it, it, the jokes are so clearly pre-written. Uh-huh. By someone else. By someone else. And like, they come out so evenly. Like, nobody's rushing to get their joke out. Nobody else is owing over the punchlines. Like, it's so rehearsed and so... It, the only word I can think of is like tacky. I didn't like it. And I wish... I had liked it. My my Sean Mendez care meter is ricocheting up and down. I think it works for certain and specific people, like Anne Hathaway when she did it. I loved it. Yeah, okay. That okay. But for me, I loved it because that is just so kind of sexy and corny about Anne Hathaway. We know that Anne Hathaway can memorize the shit out of something, like a monologue or whatnot, and then deliver it in 18 different ways. What bothers me is that I don't know that we know that of Sean Mendes. Like that was an introduction, right? You're saying that right now what he's doing is he's like with the late night and these kinds of extra activities that are going to support the album, it is going to showcase a different side of himself, but it's still, we're at intro level. Well, he's introducing himself to a new audience, right? That's That's the goal. That's what you're talking about is 30-somethings, 40-somethings of both or all genders. That's right. It didn't, it didn't get there for me. No. And the difference between Anne Hathaway and that, Sean Mendes, is because we're not getting introduced to Anne Hathaway when she's doing rap battle. This is just an added bonus of all the awesome things, you know, Anne Hathaway being good at her job in whatever her job is. It's just an added asset. Yeah. And I'm also not, I'm not saying that Sean Mendes has to be good at rap because he sings, but like a dude is arriving like born on third. In this case, like she's not even a musician. I just, it, 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 I feel like, like Randy Jackson here, but like, it was just okay. I don't know. Um, it's worth noting to me that your favorite part of Hamilton bar none were the rap battles, the rap battles, which in a show that is tricky, that is is complicated, that you have to listen to carefully to hear, they are extra tricky. They are extra difficult and layered and deep and fast. And it's, look, Hamilton is the most rehearsed of anything rehearsed. It's on Broadway every night. It's in three different cities right now, but it feels fresh. It feels like it's happening in the moment. And Give me a little something else. Let me feel a little bit like this is not the most rehearsed thing going. I don't know. I guess my question is, for whom was this rap battle? For whom is this like an exciting entry? Well, I mean, it was supposed to be for an older audience, just like the late night thing is going to be for an older audience. Um, Yes, 14, 15-year-old girls and 16 and 17-year-old girls – girls, they stay up late, but do they typically stay up late watching network television, right? Like this is a network TV audience that will then go up on YouTube. I was going to say network television, nothing. Yeah. Like they're just finding it on the internet, i.e. Instagram, right? Like that's what they, that's where everything comes to them. But then you could do a carpool karaoke. A one week residency is 
something else. It's on Monday, we can, we're going to do carpool. On Tuesday, I'm going to do, I don't know, some, sketch, some sketches. On Thursday, I'm going to interview. Oh, for sure. And I should say, that is interesting to me. And the live television element is interesting to me. Do I think the rap battle was the way to get into it? Like to, to mm-hmm. pique my interest? Yeah. Or fellow, fellow old people? How do you do, fellow kids? Uh, I, no. To me, it made like, okay, Sean Mendes interns for James Corden. I'm interested releasing a, this sort of rap battle as a, I know it's not an appetizer, but a, a, a peak one's interest. Yeah, my meter went back down. But again, to go back to our original thesis, if there is one, Harry Styles did the residency and the co-hosting and the whatever on James Corden. Now, they're friends. And they go way back, or they at least have a history. So it would make sense for Harry Styles, while promoting his album, his debut solo album, to get a lot of the promotion of it through James Corden. And yet, it is a step, right? In that playbook of what we do now to launch a certain thing to another audience at a stage in a career, this is one of the stops. No, I get it. And I feel like you're trying to talk me into it. And I recognize this stop as a as a, a valid step. I hated the rap battle. I thought it, it undermined what he's about to do in June. That's all I... I'm not big on the rap battle either. And I'm with you on the late night. My point in bringing up like the fact that this is a step in the playbook or a page out of the playbook is that it is so very clear to everybody that this is what the intention of Team Sean Mendez is. And listen, last week, Cardi B kind of did the same thing and got a number one album out of it. She co-hosted Fallon. She was on every media outlet, whatnot. But I feel like the difference here is that even though both of them were following a promotional playbook, Cardi kind of blew up that playbook on the sheer magnetism of her personality and charisma. I don't know if Sean Mendez in following what's become kind of a boring path, when, when it's a playbook, it's a playbook. It's a thing. It's boring. Other people have done it, has enough extra to launch him above that and make it his own. But how did you put me in this position? How did you put me in the place where now I'm defending him? But Sean Mendez has time. With all respect to Cardi B, she has appeared on the scene as a fully formed, uh, you know, persona, right? Like she is who she is. She has a story. She has a, a, a thing and she's doing her thing. Um, and last week or last month, as you, as you pointed out, was sort of the the zenith of all of those things coming together, especially because she kind of said, well, now I can, now I can let my hair down. Now I can let my stomach out, uh, announcing a pregnancy and so forth. Sean Mendez, it's also about pacing oneself, right? It's also about not spending it too early. If I go back to being those record reps, those like calculating, money-making people who do or don't give him two years between albums, maybe I am projecting forward to him wanting a break between 22 and 25, you know, wanting to go off the grid and like, 
a backpack in Phuket. I have no idea. Um, so it's also about pace. He can do this and do only an okay job and, and have three or four more growing up, uh, moments, like entree moments. And people will buy that, I think. I think you think so? I do. I think I Do you say, think he has three chances at this? I think look, I think um look, I think Justin Bieber is still sixteen. I recognize that he's not, but it's partly your fault because you like put up that photo of him being carried like a baby by his bodyguard. <laughs> right. And because he never grew, right? Like this is he still doesn't seem to me like an adult. And if he came out with a marketing scheme that was, I'm an adult now, even if he's done it two or three times already, even though he's been in the clubs, I will listen. Sean Mendes still, like he's still not legal to drink alcohol in the United States for two more years as of this podcast. There are all kinds of experiences he doesn't have. So do I think he has many more chances? I do. Do I think that's something that is not afforded to, say, the women in comparable positions? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is, uh, you know, this is cute male privilege, if you will. But yeah, I think he has umpteen tries and umpteen chances to do this slow going, growing up process. Like, see also James Franco. Ugh. Sorry. Well, I mean, now I have to apologize to Sean Mendez. Like, we do not want to associate Sean Mendez with James Franco. Um, Sean Mendez, I'm still into it. I don't know if Sean Mendez has three chances with me. Not that I matter. <laughs> I mean, you not like I'm like <laughs> not like I'm I'm like oh Sean Mendez. If you can't make it this time with me, that means everything. But I will say that I've I didn't expect to be this interested in Sean Mendez like a year ago. Would not have. Like, would not have been like, oh, you know what, Joanna, in a year we're going to be talking about Sean Mendez and he's going to kick off the show. So there's that. But I want to watch. I want to watch. I want to watch how Sean Mendez fits into all of those profiles that we talked about at the beginning, especially since we're watching him now at the beginning of a new era, an adult era. And I want to see how in a year or two, the conversation will change or not when we're putting Sean Mendez up against Britney and Adele, Justin Timberlake, and oh, you know who we forgot to mention? Ariana Grande. No, I didn't forget. <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, uh, yeah, sure. I, I love that, and I love that you're interested to watch, and somewhere as a result, a record rep just got his wings. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Okay. 
So the next person we're going to talk about is, I mean, I had to a little bit convince you. Well, I feel as though you've engineered this whole <laughs> podcast episode and possibly <laughs> next week's episode to like get underneath my fingernails. Well, <laughs> well, I think that the whole, first of all, it's Jennifer Garner. I pitched it to you. You were like, ugh. What, this meme, whatever. And then you went on a rant for five minutes and I'm like, I looked at you and I said, well, mm, don't you think that, yeah, exactly. Given the level of passion that you had in your reaction, we should be talking about this. Okay. Let us begin at the beginning. Why don't we? Okay. So Jennifer Garner, um, (laughs) as we discussed, like, look, we make a lot of We take a lot of pains when we are doing this podcast specifically to talk about the work, right? That's what it's about. That's where we're interested. There are many things to talk about in the celebrity ecosystem, but this is about the work and the choices and the the unseen elements, yes? Yes. And Jennifer Garner, as we pointed out when we were discussing it today, has some work lined up. Yes. She has been working. I believe that Um, A film called Peppermint is in production. She plays a woman who seeks revenge after 10 years on the conspiracy crew who causes the death of her husband and child. So I guess there's some like alias mixed in there, right? Like if you're going to be an assassin, she trains for 10 years to be able to get to the level of somebody who can track down these people and, I don't know, seek revenge, avenge their the deaths of her loved ones. Sure. It's in her wheelhouse, for sure. Um, she's also been shooting the HBO series Camping, which is, of course, the Lena Dunham and Jenny Connor show. It's kind of an ensemble. It's a remake, if I remember correctly, of a British format. Uh, but she's that's coming up also. She's been working. And, you know, I we've been talking about her over the last couple of years. Like, she is uniquely positioned to position herself in the industry. She, you know, kind of has – there are a lot of people who want to see her succeed. So these are good pieces of information. These are good pieces of news that she has these jobs and probably more to come. And she's becoming quite popular and enjoyable to many people, maybe not to certain people, but to many people on social media, in particular, well, mainly Instagram. Tell me about two instances prior to the recording of this podcast when she has been interesting to people on Instagram. Um, just, just sum it up for the people who are like, oh yeah. She was like, well, a lot of people love when she reads and does things with her dog. Okay. So she'll like read a book to her dog and it'll be pretty cute. I mean, we're dog people and it's, it's pretty adorable. All right. Um, it's like she has all kinds of like a menagerie in her house. So there were some chickens. So she was like hanging out with her chickens. I know. I'm growing tired, but yes, yeah. yes. And then she did like a majorette thing. Oh my God. <laughs> I wish I hadn't asked. <laughs> um, and the most recent thing, on her birthday, she made herself a meme. She, like, did her own meme. That was today, yes? That's what we're talking that about That was, here? like, a couple days ago. Uh, yesterday? Yeah. Thursday. Do we need to, like, uh... yeah, like, that was, okay. 
this is where, like, uh, you keep like close. I just want people to, to be able to see you keep like doing the slow close with your eyes, and then when they close, they flutter. Like, (laughs) (laughs) look, I, I, like I said, like I began this podcast a bit crotchety to begin with. And then, you know, we found that you had some deficits in friendship that have been revealed and the day is kind of unrolled from there. The thing with Jennifer Garner is sometimes I can and sometimes I can't, uh, but I've basically understand that she sometimes gets a rough portrayal. Sometimes she is portrayed a little bit the way people talk about Anne Hathaway, like she's a bit, oh gosh, and golly. The way that she counteracts that, it just doesn't always work for me. When she reads Go the Fuck to Sleep, Uh, which was the big kind of breakout in the wake of the divorce and the Phoenix tattoo and whatnot. She read the children's book, New York Times bestseller, Go the Fuck to Sleep. And everybody was like, oh my God, Jennifer Garner said fuck while lying on a chaise lounge. Um, And it was a bit much for me, but whatever. I never saw that. You'll... You'll know what I'm referring yeah, to. Yeah, I do know what you're f- referring to. Like, I think that a few celebrities have done it, and the one that I, the only one I watched, I think, was Samuel L. Jackson because, <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm going to just sidebar for the parents who are listening. If you are nodding with familiarity because you were given a copy of Go the Fuck to Sleep and, like, your kid pulls it out and is like, what's this one? You're like, we're not going to read that one. May I also just direct you to ludicrous rapping uh, to Llama Llama Red Pajama um, <laughs> on the radio. It is like, we're going to put it in the show notes because it's miraculous. And it really, if you are suffering in the sort of preschool dearth of anything interesting happening, I give you ludicrous reading Llama Llama. Um, anyway, back to Jennifer Garner. The thing is, I know that sometimes she is earnest. I know that when she was made into a meme during the Oscars, uh, remember that thing that happened? And like, it was like, what did they say? Like she was trying to like process something and she looked all earnest in her blue dress and whatever. Like, okay, I get that. That was interesting. That was a thing. I liked how it went. What I have an issue with, I have an issue with the meme And I would like you to describe it for us because I feel like that's going to highlight my issue. Okay. Well, she has her hair in rollers. It's a photo. Mm -hmm. And she's like, it's my birthday. And then she quotes from The Help. Okay. Keep going. (laughs) What did she quote? I don't know. You know that line, you is good enough, you is pretty enough, that thing? Yeah. 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 Yeah, I know that thing. Yeah. (sighs) Okay. Here's what's up. You can't make yourself into a meme. Like, that's not done. You cannot give yourself a nickname, and you cannot, like, make yourself into a comedic thing. The whole point of a meme is that it happens... And then people jump on it and crowdsource it, and it's great, right? Like, what's your favorite meme right now? As of this writing, people really like that, like, 
Is it Duck Dynasty when two dudes argue back and forth? Or there's also the ones where, like, the old guys are asking Mark Zuckerberg, like, what is a Facebook? Uh, Like, I saw one today where it was like, uh, I got a a CD for 33 days of AOL online. Is that Facebook? Like, that's a meme. Yeah. What is your favorite meme as of this broadcast? Oh, I can't. Like, for some reason, I I don't have a fresh one. For some Okay, fine. All time. What's your favorite all time? I really, really love the memes that came out of uh, Rihanna at the Met Gala when she wore that big, big yellow dress, that guope dress, and people, and it was like, they used the photo of her, her the train of the dress going down the steps, and they put pizza on it. Omelets. Or, or they fry omelets on it. I love that meme. That fr- might be like forever. When I'm 65, I'm going to say I love that meme. If, sure. If, if memes are still a thing. I like a, I like a dark Kermit meme. I'm always here for one of those, you know, like we have. Yeah. And I'm always here. Like I really, really love the sad Keanu meme. Okay. Sure. Oh, and see, that reminds me of another one. I really like a cheerful Alice Richmond meme. Do you know what I mean? This is Tina Fey's daughter, like whistling down the street. Right. So those happen organically. You cannot make a meme. You cannot make yourself a meme. You're right. Like, if Rihanna had memed her own dress, that would be the lamest shit ever. Yes. But of course, Rihanna is never lame, so it wouldn't have happened. Right. But like, no, you don't do that. It's not a thing that you do. Um, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the most, like, wormholy, circular celebrity. Even Drake. Drake comes close to memeing himself sometimes. Oh, very close. Like, he, the other day, tweeted... Uh, you know, uh, current mood, and it was an image of himself in Degrassi at 14 or whatever. <laughs> okay, but also I'm laughing, so I guess I can't drag Drake. Right? Like, that's pretty close, but it's also, that's like a master of the yes. of the form. Yes. As you say, Drake is a master at all things new media. Yeah, like, he's also the one who has that sign, right? Like, less Tupac, more Drake. Like, he's operating at a high level. Correct. This meme is two things. Number one, it is not a meme because you can't meme yourself. Mm -hmm. And number two, and most upsettingly, it is not the meme that I thought you meant when I agreed to talk about this on the podcast. (laughs) So she's done it multiple times? What I thought you wanted to talk about was Jennifer Garner wrapping herself in the Lenny Kravitz style uh, giant scarf. Right. And being out in the world, like, look at me. Behold, I am wearing a giant scarf. (laughs) Photograph me. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay, but both are equally shitty. They're both terrible. Yes. Yes. Like, one is arguably less intentional than the other, but not really. And also, like, come on. But we've unintentionally identified back-to-back shitty memes self-generated. Yes. That's not a thing. You can't do that. Like, I get if you, I guess I I have multiple resentments here. Number one, you don't do that. Like, it's, it's, when I was in high school, they were selling, like, caps, like, school caps with the, you know, the school logo on the front, and then you could put your name on the back or your nickname or whatever. And I kind of put a version of a nickname that I wanted people to call me, but nobody actually did. And I got roundly 
and correctly dragged for it because you don't do that. Nobody says that. You can't put your fucking nickname on the back of your hat if that's not your nickname. Yes. And you can't make your nickname like Kinicky if everybody calls you Boom Boom or whatever. Like, sorry, your nickname is your nickname. Similarly, you cannot meme yourself if if there's no there's no basis in anything. It's not like it's based in like being, uh, you know, if some of these memes were deep cut throwback jokes to being Hannah on Felicity, I would be here for this. Or if she was, you know, when I referenced her reading Go the Fuck to Sleep, she was kind of mocking her role as perfect mm-hmm. mom. Yeah. I can kind of get behind that. This is just neither of those things. And also, it feels a wee tad thirsty. Again, we talked about she has this stuff coming out, right? She has projects, and traditionally, that's how we have interacted with Jennifer Garner, right? Like, uh, dog serenades aside, she's generally, that's when she kind of comes to the forefront. So... I don't know. You got to be better at this if you want to change the rules. That's well, how I feel. Here's here's why I thought this was an interesting discussion. Because a few weeks ago, we talked about Will Smith leaning into his, like, dad persona um, and creating comedy out of that on social media by, again, understanding and accepting that he's no longer the Fresh Prince but he's the not-so-fresh dad with, like, two really super cool, hip children. And so he's going to be that guy who just, like, cracks terrible jokes and laughs at them himself and cracks us up in the process. Right. He's growing along with his audience. That's right. Hint, hint, Avril Lavigne, and going, hey, are you a dork dad? So am I. So with Jennifer Garner, I recently saw her in a movie, and I loved the movie Love, Simon. Okay, sure. And she's the mom in Love, Simon. And she was really delightful. Like, I I could watch Jennifer Garner like that all the time. So she clearly is at this stage of her career leaning into that, right? As you said, the perfect mom. I mean, and she has been that since Juno, right? Like, that was arguably, people really liked her in that role low these many years ago playing the hopefully perfect mom. That's right. And so on social media, this is kind of what she's doing in the sense of she's baking, she's reading to the dog, she's hanging out with the chickens, she's posting goofy photos of herself. And at least with you, it's not resonating. Not the way it resonates with Will Smith. No, but I will allow that Jennifer Garner had a much further way to go than Will Smith because of you know, entrenched goodwill and the fact that Will Smith allows me to miss him from time to time. I feel that's not even true. I just feel like she doesn't need this. She doesn't need to be this goofy in order to get the attention because it's coming through legitimate means. Again, like I'm having a super fun time just like mocking memes and rolling our eyes, but I do wonder if this is an instructive from somebody. Like let people in, make yourself more real, show them you're not perfect. Is this a strategy beyond a thirst? I definitely think there's a strategy to it. 
Initially, I thought that the strategy on social media was going to be a lifestyle launch the way so many of her peers have done the same. When um, she was early on in her Instagram career, she announced that she was like launching some kind of baby food line. And so I was like, that is totally Jennifer Garner. I get it. But since then, the baby food line has really not had a huge presence. Haven't heard much about it at all. And it has been some time now that she's been on Instagram and we haven't seen any next step of the lifestyle. So I don't know if she's playing the long game with this because it becomes really obvious for a lot of celebrities these days, right? They launch their Instagram and then literally their third post, it's like, here is my new clothing company or whatnot. And I thought maybe, oh, are you kind of stretching this out? Are you trying not to be so obvious and you're going to play on Instagram maybe for like six months before you drop the thing that you want to drop after the baby food? But there hasn't been something that has dropped. So I don't know what the intention is. And to go back to Will Smith, I'm not sure Will Smith's Instagram dadding actually has an end game. Whereas I think what you and I are both hitting on is Jennifer Garner's Instagramming for some reason, are we suspicious of it? Like, we are not taking it at face value. That's what I'm saying. Why is that? I really like where you took this because um, the answer is that the prospective baby food line would have been redundant. Jennifer Garner was already getting the mom roles. She doesn't need the baby food line. And look, it's not that I don't think it would have been authentic or whatever, but she doesn't need it. Jessica Alba, who is arguably the queen of the baby and child lifestyle integration, was changing from an object of lust for many to an older person in order to get roles where she can conceivably be believed as a mom, as a woman in her 30s, she needs sort of that convergence. Yes? Uh, Sarah Michelle Geller, who is not, you know, a player on these levels, but who comes to mind, is similarly a, a star who was a young icon for a lot of people and has a baking line that not only is sort of a, a sideline, but allows people to see her in these roles. So she can get the mom roles in the Judd Apatow movies that will, you know, introduce her to kind of a new phase of audience, right? Jennifer Garner was already getting those roles. I would have to go into her Instagram to look at the date of first child and date of first mom role, but I bet you they are neck and neck, if not before. Or another way of looking at it is like 13 going on 30 which is maybe her most famous film role, she was kind of a mom before she was a mom. She doesn't need to double down on the mom thing. What she's doing is kind of the opposite of what a lot of stars her age is doing. She's not showing us how mom she is because God, we already know. She's trying to show us something else. She's trying to lean a different way, maybe closer to a The question is what? Like closer to a Tina Fey, to an Amy Poehler, to a who's a model for a dorky and imperfect 46-year-old that she could be trying to emulate or to create? 
I don't have an answer to that. Do you? No, but I'm way more interested than I was five minutes ago. Okay, so when do we check in on Jennifer Garner again? I mean, I think if this is a strategy, then camping and peppermint are going to inform us about what that strategy is a little more. We're going to see if you're Jennifer Garner and you are getting all kinds of offers, what are these choices that you're making and how do they mesh with this? Maybe they will sort of drop the needle on what the Instagram is alluding to. Or maybe we'll see her, I don't know what, write something, create something for herself, announce to us that she is a different role. But it's interesting that while so many people are leaning into a, hey, I'm a young mom thing, she's sort of, I don't want to say leaning out, but stretching the walls, if you will, uh, in a mime kind of way, uh, and emphasizing the dork factor in a way that I didn't think we needed. We don't need any more memes. I don't care that you're wrapped in a big-ass scarf. No more memes. And public service announcement once again, you can't give yourself a nickname. No. But, you know, even in a story a few days ago about Jennifer Garner drunkenly exploring the contents of her backpack, they say she used the hashtag, had some wine. And I just, I also, uh, a hashtag. You don't need the hashtag. You don't need to clarify what you were doing without any space bar for us to think it's cute and cool. Something really, really, really exciting has happened. Um, Something I've been waiting for for months. And that is we have finally gotten a first look at Crazy Rich Asians. I've been waiting for this movie. You know how much I love the books. I now understand why. I think I understand why they pushed the release of this trailer back for so long. Um, And I'm fucking excited. I'm fucking excited about how it looks like the strategy for the release of this film is going to be, which is big and invested. Okay, so talk to me like I know nothing. Uh, Give me a primer, if you will. Uh, So the movie comes out this summer. August 17th. Right. Every time, okay. Wait. Wait. You done? You good? Let's assume there was an asterisk beside the word primer, which you might have assumed I would have said primer. But every time I hear this word used on a podcast, most of the time by Ira Glass on This American Life, he says primer. I don't know if this is some Baltimore thing of his or if I've been mispronouncing primer, i.e. you're primed to hear the story. But when I said primer a few seconds ago, I got a full room crack up, so... Let's just let's just put that out there. I will take your notes and your advisements on the primer primer on or off a podcast uh, variants. Let me know, Ira Glass. Email me. Anyway, as we were, the movie comes out this summer, August seventeenth, and you felt that the trailer, or rather, this is actually a teaser of the trailer. Yes, right. By the time people listen to the by the time people listen to this podcast, though the official trailer will have been out. 
But either way, you feel like that's late because generally speaking, these days we get a trailer and or a teaser. How far in advance? I mean, like at least six months. So sometimes if the trailer is late, it can imply like problems. Yes. Or like we don't know how we're going to sell this or whatever. It can imply problems that don't necessarily have to do with the quality of the film, but that the studio doesn't give a shit, that there's no money, that they don't think it's going to do well. There are many, many, many reasons. But But when you clicked on this one, then you knew that wasn't the case. Well, it's clicking on it, the coordination of it, and also the timing of it. Um, The timing is that today is the first day of CinemaCon. And CinemaCon is generally when all the major studios go to Vegas to present to a conference, a convention, whatever. Yeah, it's a convention of cinema owners, theater owners, to get them jacked up about the big movies that are about to come out over the course of the next, let's call it six months or so, maybe even a year. Okay. And so typically the movies that are presented by the studios are Jurassic Mission Transformers for Furiouses, like, like those kinds of movies. And I think, and we'll see, that the fact that Warner Brothers held Crazy Rich Asians for this specific time, it just happens to be CinemaCon week, I think Warner Brothers is going to make Crazy Rich Asians part of their presentation, which is, I mean... I blah, 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 yeah, blah, blah. I have no words. That's so, that is, means so much to me personally, but I think it should mean so much to everything that they're going to be like, hey, we got a rom-com. And not only is it a rom-com, it's a rom-com featuring predominantly Asians. And you're going to love it. And you're going to love it so much, theater owners, that we're going to like present it to you in this, our big, our big convention presentation. We're going to cut something slick and maybe we're going to bring in the cast. Like, uh, that's really big, right? I mean, it is, but I want to really drill down to why. Um, when you say that usually at CinemaCon they present, can I replicate it? Jurassic Transformer Murder Cons? What did you say? Jurassic Mission Transformer Furiouses. Right. Not only are those big, big movies, but they are... You know, they're blockbusters in the traditional sense. They are, they're money makers. Yes, they are movies with big special effects, big amounts of money. Mm-hmm. Like and, nobody's taking Phantom Thread to CinemaCon. Right. But they are also, those movies are all released in the summer. Yeah. And those movies are released in the summer because they are money makers. Money makers. The movies that we later talk about and that are up for Oscar bait and that your parents ask you to download three months after the fact. Phantom Thread. Sure, the post. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Those are released like the last week of December. Mm -hmm. So what's so fascinating about Crazy Rich Asians in this context is that there are no monsters. There are no special effects. Nope. Uh, especially, um, you know, Crazy Rich Asians kind of gives you a hint, but there's a lot of of money and a lot of excess in this film, but it's all done authentically, right? Like, I don't think this is 
I don't think there's a whole lot of green screen happening and they're they're pretending they're in Paris while they're actually in the studio. They're they're going and doing. It was a big budget. And that means they expect to make the money back. Yeah. And a year ago at CinemaCon, there was a comparable movie that was presented by its studio at CinemaCon, and that movie was called Girls Trip. Huh. Interesting. And I think, I don't think we have to explain <laughs> what Girls Trip was. And Well, on the one hand, we don't have to explain because Girls Trip speaks for itself. But on the other hand, Girls Trip exceeded the expectations set for it, right? If CinemaCon is kind of a, a debut, uh, like a debutante ball for movies that should do well, Girls Trip exceeded what it was expected to do. True? Yes. I mean, listen, the fact that Girls Trip was part of the presentation last year at CinemaCon was promising. It meant that the studio believed in it and was like, we're going to take this with us to Vegas, to the theater owners. Um, We have high hopes for it. But as we know in Hollywood, in movies, you can hope and then it can die. Sure, there have been big budget flops. Lots of movies go to CinemaCon with the same kind of hopes and then, like, they do nothing at the box office. So, but I do mention the similarity because we have, throughout the course and the start of this podcast, as people have done across the industry, talked about moving the needle and progress and change and what that looks like. Um, And there are... There need to be more examples, I know, and more work needs to be done, of course, but certain things are changing. Some people are listening, it would seem. Well, let me kind of point out what we're talking about here. Girls Trip was arguably a risk. Uh, They shot a movie for not that much money. They look at the movie and they go, hey this looks kind of good. Let's take this to CinemaCon. They take it to CinemaCon with some expectations and the audiences way outpace the expectations, right? The audiences who are going to go and see a movie that is headlined by four black women far outstripped what the projections said there were going to be. So this is another way in which Crazy Rich Asians is an interesting, it follows in an interesting precedent, right? Because the idea is, okay, well, here's a movie, looks pretty good, has a pretty good teaser. We think there might be some people who will go to see, you know, a a film that is entirely staffed by Asian actors who I have to point out for the most part are going to be relative unknowns to a, a North American Cinema audience, yes? Great point. I mean, with Girls Trip, Jada, Jada Pinkett Smith, I mean, who else? Jada, first name basis, sure. And Queen Latifah arguably are household names. Mm -hmm. As you're saying right now, really nobody, nobody in Crazy Rich Asians is a household name. I mean, the biggest name would be Constance Wu, but… You're doing your best for Constance Wu. You are single-handedly promoting her. I know you are. Um, But… I don't think if you walked out right now into a major in, into a major intersection in any major city and pulled 10 people, 
I don't know if five would nod in recognition if you drop the name Constance Wu. Right. So this movie is being sold on the basis of the movie, not on, at least in North America, because of course I don't want to imply that some of the stars uh, who are, I think, maybe well-known stars in Asia or better known, uh, international ticket sales are going to be different. But in North America, they're going to sell this movie on the basis of the movie. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, when you're talking about international stars, probably the biggest one associated with the movie would be Michelle Yeoh. And who, of course, who, of course, but she's an action star in Asia, Mm -hmm. right? Like her Asian fan base, international Asian fan base, I don't know, is following her um, and excited, look, excited may not be the like the operative word here, but they don't know her to be a potential mother-in-law who may be the mother-in-law from hell in an English language movie that was written from the perspective of a North American. So often I feel, because I am contrarian, as you point out, often I feel like a vote of confidence like this can be more anxiety making than not, right? Like then having nothing to prove and proving everything. So my question to you is if they called you, you know, late Sunday night, you got to start a new job Monday morning, how, what would you do to promote this? Or what would you do? Like, what's the, what's the strategy here? The advantage girls trip had on top of everything else is girls trip is a phrase. You can give away trips, you can give away suitcases, you can you know, uh, there are marketing campaigns that you can play. The grapefruit industry, I assume, got a real kick. Um, what would you do to to make this movie live up to the hype that now CinemaCon has kind of implied it has? I really like what they did with this teaser preview, whatever you want to call it. They're selling it to be a rom-com, a princess fairy tale. Here's a girl who is into a really beautiful man. He's gorgeous. And she says, I didn't know you were the Prince William of Asia. And he says, no, I'm more like Harry, but. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a line they could not have known when they wrote it would be so apropos right now. Yes. And that's, uh, you know, shout out to people who cut trailers. The line in the movie is probably a good line, Putting it in the trailer makes it incredibly relevant right this second. That's right. In real life, we have a prince who has found a commoner and is going to be marrying her, and it's a fairy tale. Fairy tales usually only look one way, usually, that we know of. So what they're doing is they're selling this fairy tale too. Rich, glitz, glamour, mansions, cars, fairy tale girl just like you, the boy, like the, the dream boat, he's rich, he's beautiful, he's connected, he whisks her off to Asia, what happens? This is your classic rom-com sales pitch, and I'm down for it. Well, now I'm going to put you on the spot again. Obviously, one of the skills of marketing a film is marketing it in different markets. So if you were sitting with your ma and, uh, you know, a lot of your family from, from Hong Kong or whatever, are there elements of this teaser trailer that we saw that would feel 
so American that they were, oh, they're changing this to try and market to Americans or, oh, they're pushing that North American button? You know what? I'm going to, I don't know if this is the answer you want, but like, I'm going to say no. Because that trope, as problematic as it can be, you know, the ordinary girl meets the rich guy, you know, who turns out to be the richest heir in whatever country. I know we've gone back and forth and forwards and sideways and whatever about what those tropes can suggest, but that trope is actually recognizable in every culture. The Cinderella trope. I, well, I don't know if what I have to say helps or hinders, but I have to be honest or dumb or something and say that because, you know, because we'd heard this coming and because uh, this is a whole new cast I hadn't seen before, it's obvious to me now that you say it that it's a Cinderella trope, but I didn't really see it. I was, I felt very in it. I felt very like, oh God, yeah, I got to meet a mother-in-law and not like, oh, here we go. Rich, like, you know, rags to riches story or like upper middle class to riches or whatever yeah. it is. I didn't see that as a trope. So count that as a vote for your point, I guess, or a vote for mine that no. I didn't see it as, as. Our point, our point. Yeah. Because I, our point is that like, essentially there's, there are only a handful of stories, right? Like <laughs> from the time of Shakespeare and before really in thematically, there are only a handful of stories. For sure. But this is the point, right? Seeing it with all new faces yes. and a whole new context yes. makes it feel brand new. Yes. And so that's why I'm so pleased. And like, I'm so excited to hear your reaction where you're like, oh shit. Yeah, that is the Cinderella trope. Fuck, you didn't recognize it because it was so fresh. Yes, exactly. And it makes me think, oh, I'm going to see this new movie I've never seen and not I'm going to go, you know, and not like, oh, here it is again. Because every time you tell the same story mm -hmm. from a new perspective, yeah, it's a new story. I know. And I'm sorry it's taken us this long to get to Kevin Kwan's name because Kevin Kwan wrote the book series, Crazy Rich Asians. Hi, Kevin. We know each other a little bit. Um, oh, pardon me. <laughs> no, it's because when he was on his book tour, I interviewed him. So um, I, I think we can go ahead and say, like, you've been an early, loud, and vocal fan of Crazy Rich Asians. I think that's totally… Yes, I have stand and caped for this book series and now movie for a long time, since the very beginning. But to give Kevin credit, what he did was he wrote an updated version of Cinderella tailored specifically to Asian culture. What you have is your, as you say, middle-class ordinary girl who meets a man who is actually a prince, but a commoner in disguise. Yeah. There it is. Can you yep. see it now? Yep. He's disguised as this professor. She knows nothing of the fact that back in Singapore, his estate, his family estate is the most epic mansion in all the land. Which is, of course, part of the point, because if she knew, she wouldn't be pure of heart and be able to win him, and he is practiced at knowing who the, you know, who is good enough to be a true princess yes. and can fit the shoe. Yeah. And so, to go back to your question, you know, how would you sell it if I got the job on Monday? I wouldn't change what they're doing. They're doing exactly what they should be doing, and they're 
they're doing it in a way that you don't even know. Like, I don't know that a lot of people, because I consider you one of the smartest people I know, and if you're saying you didn't recognize the trope, then I don't know if a lot of people would have recognized the trope. No, and I mean, either that means they're doing a great job and or I'm an idiot, you know, and so I'm happy for both. I am always happy to be surprised and presented something new. And I'm excited for all the people who are going to say in a few short months, oh, I had no idea. I didn't even know. Look how relatable this story is, they will say, as though there was ever any doubt. Yes. So are we booking out a theater on August 17th? What, you need my permission? (laughs) (laughs) I, yeah, I, I, I say this because and I think everybody can hear it. I have I've been waiting my whole life for this movie. And I I I don't want to make unfair comparisons because there is Paul because there is politics and deeper deeper levels of inequality happening that I certainly can't relate to, but the way that Black Americans and Black people around the world felt before the release of Black Panther, there is, for me, a sense that is a little bit the same that I'm waiting for in Crazy Rich Asians. Well, and I think the the easiest comparison there without talking about sort of, yeah, variances in, in politics and, and geopolitical heritage and whatnot is the joy with which you get to consume this. And probably, to your point about renting out a theater, the sheer number of times you get to choose to see this over and over again and to experience people who look like you being Cinderella on the big screen. Yeah. And people who look like my cousins and one time my dad (laughs) (laughs) being like Prince Charming. So what you're saying is basically you're booked until August 1st. Yeah. In the coming weeks and months, I will be talking a lot about Crazy Rich Asians. And we do have Crazy Rich Asians stories that we're holding back. Oh, yeah. There's some (laughs) stories there. I mean, that's a real nice tidbit. And you throw that out uh, because I'm going to get excited about telling that story. But you also throw that out because you're still trying to butter me up for having, <laughs> like, absolutely shafted me on the Beyonce merch. So don't think I don't know what's happening here. I got you. I got you. But I think you can get me back when we finally tell this story. There's time. <laughs> Stand by for this story. This is a, uh, you'll know when you hear it. Thank you so much for listening and for bearing with my like the last five minutes of me, I don't know, five, 10, 15 minutes of me squealing about Crazy Rich Asians. It was kind of delightful, to be honest. And, you know, it balanced out my, my avowed crotchetiness in a, in a way I appreciate. We will be back next week. Uh, but until then, please check us out on Google Play and iTunes and Spotify. Please leave your comments. Keep emailing us. We love them. We share them. We send them back and forth, sometimes at three in the morning. Check us out on Twitter. Did we already say that? Uh, Love it, hate it, and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, Fresh. 